Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia, where we discuss news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host for today, Daniel Flitton, a journalist and senior correspondent with The Age newspaper. Since the end of World War II, Australia's foreign policy has been heavily influenced by its powerful allies, originally Britain and later the United States. But how much has a fear of being abandoned driven how Australia acts? And how should it change in the modern global climate? Our guest today is Alan Gingell. Among his many job titles, he was a foreign policy advisor to Paul Keating and worked as a diplomat, policy officer and analyst in several government departments. He spoke to me in this live podcast, recorded at the launch of his new book, Fear of Abandonment, Australia in the World Since 1942, published by La Trobe Press. I, I was thinking about this 25, 30 minutes. I've got to interrogate uh, a book that's so rich as this one in terms of the, the history of the last 75 years. And I, I sort of thought to myself, well, that 30 minutes, that's about a quiz show length. So we could transform it into, do you remember Mastermind? You know, we can just ask, yeah. ask some questions here. I say, so, you know, name the year that Paul Hasluck was, the foreign, was made foreign minister. Yeah. We'll start, start like this. Now, I, I couldn't help but thinking too, when, when I read the book and Alan asked me to have a look at it, a couple of the, um, the later chapters while he was writing it. But as I was reading the book, I, I couldn't help but think that it was like one of these choose your own adventures uh, in terms of the chronology of events that have happened in the last 75 years. And if you look at uh, questions like the US alliance, um, issues around nuclear disarmament, uh, the relationship with Indonesia, the relationship with our Pacific neighbours, uh, the Commonwealth, which I know is a favourite institution of yours, Alan, um, which we might go into in a moment, uh, and, uh, and other international institutions as well, that throughout uh, various stages of the chronology, you've, you've sort of swept back to them. And, and I found in looking at the book, I could go back, use the index to, to flip between the various different um, eras and see the evolution and change in Australian foreign policy. So I, I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, from that perspective, but with something so deep and so rich, it's, it's hard for me to know quite where to begin when we have this discussion. So I wanted to ask you about the frame, how that you settled on this frame of of the, the, the fear of abandonment. And for those that haven't had a look at it just yet, it, it struck me that the cover uh, has Australia with the map upside down to what it would usually be presented, which was an old trick that a university lecturer of mine used to used to do in order to uh, challenge perceptions of somehow the great mass of people that are in Asia um, would, uh, by dint of gravity, fall down on top of Australia and make us think about security in a different way. H how did you settle on, on fear of abandonment? Well, the first thing I settled on was the fact that I sort of came to the end of a um, long and slightly eccentric uh, career and as you the way you feel when you go to a movie which you've really enjoyed you say to your um, your partner gee that was good but let's go away and have a cup of coffee and have a think about it and I wanted to have a think about what had been the sort of day-to-day -day business and um, remarkably enough I think um, no one had written a narrative history of Australian foreign policy for 40 years. Lots of 
things had been written by uh, about particular dimensions of Australian foreign policy, including by a number of people here in the in the uh, in the room today. But no one had taken the story from the start, and I really did want to do that because I think it's a story that is worth telling and which more Australians should know because it's in effect the story of how the world that we inhabit and the things we now take for granted was um, was formed. The um, so when you when you have that as your your uh, objective, you think about what it all means, and it has always seemed to me that if the uh, primal fear of the American founding fathers was the fear of foreign entanglements, the primal fear uh, of Australia since European settlement has been the fear of abandonment. And when you think about it, that's not at all. Um, uh, a strange thing. Here we are making an audacious claim to a continent, uh, a small population located a long way from the markets for our products and the places from which most non-indigenous, well all non-indigenous Australians uh, um, originated. So you think to yourself, the central sort of the existential question is, what do we do? How do we look after this? Um, and um, so the, the fear of abandonment was the thing that, that drove Australian foreign policy, and we can go into what the responses were. Well, I guess there, there, there was a, another quite pithy phrase that I think is credited to, to Gareth Evans, if I'm not wrong, about the difference between being a, a foreign policy taker and a foreign policy maker. Is that something that you, looking over those years that you've examined here, that you thought about in, in terms of what have been the priorities for Australia? Uh, well, it's one of the things come, that uh, comes through as you as you trace the uh, the history. You can you you can, you can see continuity across every Australian government since 1942. Uh, a, a, a much larger element of bipartisanship in uh, foreign policy than people normally uh, acknowledge because the things that parties fight about are the things that they disagree on rather than the things that, uh, that they agree on. But you also learn that there are some policy makers who you get to the end of writing a chapter and you think, I've hardly mentioned you know, this person or that person, others who've had, who've had um, uh, a really decisive impact. And the difference between the two is that, that uh, the ones who've had the impact were the, uh, were the policy makers, the people who wanted to make a difference. Yeah, I wanted to pick up on that because the book's not a memoir, um, but it, it struck me that it, it, is, it has the quality of the close observer that you've been for the last 40 years um, over your career, um, and particularly with Keating and, and uh, later with Rudd and Gillard, uh, an insider at that highest level. Can you talk to us a little bit about, um, I guess, the quality of the individual um, the impact of personalities on foreign policy when it comes to what are decisions about priorities. You said in the book that Fraser 
had a romantic attachment to, to great causes. Um, is that, I guess what I'm asking is the way in which personalities have shaped the, 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 the approach that Australia's had to the world? All the, all the policymakers have been politicians in our, <clears throat> in our system and, uh, and all of them have had the, uh, the sort of the strengths and the motivations of all, uh, of all um, uh, politicians and they've each uh, brought to it a, um, a different uh, view of the, uh, the world and a different um, under, understanding of it. The ones who have um, uh, been best at that so in, in that sense, foreign policy is no different from uh, any other sort of uh, policy. You need to know what to do and you need to know when the moment has come to strike. There's a, a famous um, line from Otto von Bismarck talking about the role of the statesman and he says, this, the, the, there's nothing the statesman can do except listen for the footsteps of God hurrying past and reach out to touch. Uh, the hem of his garment, meaning that the key point about statecraft is knowing when the time has come to do something in the way that Percy Spender knew the time had come to establish uh, the ANZUS um, uh, Treaty or that uh, Gareth Evans knew that the time had come to get Cambodian peace settlement or Kevin Rudd knew that the time had come when you could get a G20 leaders meeting uh, uh, going so recognizing that the time and then when the time appears having the ideas and the energy uh, necessary to drive that that forward and I would have thought too the relationships as well in terms of the relationships with other leaders was that something that, that you know, when you were doing the research and plus from your own observation that you sort of saw evidence yeah you know, I think I, like as a good example one of the things that I looked at closely was was uh, Keating's relationship with Suharto and, yeah. and the way in which that developed. But you also mentioned um, the uh, Spender. I was surprised to learn that Casey was pushing for recognition of China back in the 1950s. Yeah. Uh, th those sorts of relationship issues? Yeah, it's all, it's all about relationships. And, uh, you know, the big difference <clears throat> um, in the sort of the, the worldview of um, practitioners and um, international relations theorists is the uh, is the role of human agency and um, if you're a practitioner you can't help but be sort of belted over the head by a human agency um, well, Gareth all, all the time. Throw astray, <coughs> astrays <didn't> you? <laughs> astrays <laughs> thrown at you by human agency. Um, it's uh, I was thinking of that actually um, apropos of something that's not in the in the book but uh, the uh, meeting between Xi Jinping and uh, and um, Donald Trump at uh, Mar-a-Lago uh, Friday I think uh, of, uh, of this week and a lot of the commentary is about the things that they will discuss but much more important than that I think is the way in which the two men will size themselves up and the decisions that will uh, they will make about what they can do. I mean, you know, the central political skill really is psychological acuity. And, um, and uh, so, yes, uh, human agency, personal relationships, 
uh, have been important all the way through. The most sort of obvious recent example of that was probably uh, uh, John Howard in uh, Washington on 9-11 and the personal um, relationship, the depth of the personal commitment that he felt to, uh, to George W. Bush for that and the policy consequences of that are still uh, unraveling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a, um, uh, I want to get to questions and make sure I give plenty of time, but um, uh, there was a quote <coughs> which, which really struck me that you've dug out of the, the files. This, this goes to East Timor. Uh, uh, and you, said, you, you say that there was a serious gap of information coming from the government from inside what was then Portuguese Timor. So this was in the, the late 60s and into the early 70s. Uh, the Australian consulate in Dili, which had been opened in 1941, was closed to save money in 1970. And this was the quote, We see no likelihood that internal developments in Timor will become significant from Australia's point of view, wrote the then Secretary of the Foreign Affairs Department or the then External Affairs Department mm. um, to, to his minister. And those sorts of, that, that was a really striking wrong judgment because yeah, um, yeah. uh, if anything is benevolent relationships between Australia and Indonesia in the, the 25 years of the last century was was in the, was East Timor uh, and then obviously it's you know still playing out um, what what sort of a role did the various inputs have I know that you focused here mostly on the the leaders and from the foreign ministers and, and the prime ministers, but the various roles that the bureaucracy have in terms of shaping their world view? Uh, it, it varied from time to time, and, uh, and the, the book is very much a um, uh, foreign policy from the perspective of the policy makers. I haven't, I haven't done, there are many fine um, diplomatic historians, two of them sitting with us today, um, who've uh, um, uh, gone into that. I, I was really giving a, a, a much higher um, the, the, the sort of view from the prime ministers and, and the ministers. However, the thing that you learn very quickly is that the the policy makers who have had the success have been the ones who have been able to draw effectively on their officials and the departments um, are around them. So ministers like um, uh, uh, Spender or Barwick were much more successful than ministers like Hasluck, who you would have thought at the, at the beginning would have had all the attributes to be a great minister, but was hopeless at uh, really dealing with his, uh, his officials and uh, and uh, under, understanding the uh, ministry. Gareth Evans um, drove his officials very hard and drove them to distraction. And, uh, and um, they complained uh, uh, bitterly about him from time to time, but because he, he, he was able to point them in the direction of outcomes and make them feel that they were part of a process that was uh, was worthwhile and so they were willing to uh, uh, to go through all that so it's um, it, it, it can't be done individually you can't sit on top of the of the process 
I, I suppose you'd see an example of that maybe unfair but uh, possibly in Kevin Rudd and his inability to marshal the forces um, behind him in the way that in the way that would have produced the most productive results yeah I, I get to be a bit selfish here because um because because at the moment I get to ask the questions so one of the things that that uh, I've often reflected on for myself is having had time working in universities and writing articles that no one read um, and then writing reports for the Prime Minister when I was at ONA which were just supposedly just for the one reader or a very small band of, of readers and you've put a lot of work into these things, there's lots of consultation, it wasn't really your own product, it was the office product and you felt like you were doing important work. Um, but you never really dealt with the principles. You never, like, I didn't personally go and brief the Prime Minister. I had to leave, that, that was something that I trusted to the, had to trust to the Director General to do, um, even though I might have written the reports. Um, when you're a journalist, they talk to you. Um, they talk to you a lot. They often tell you all sorts of things about your personal character. Um, <laughs> if they don't like what you're writing, you have a lot more interaction with, with the principles. Did, you talk on a, on a couple of occasions about instances where the media has had an impact on on Australia's foreign policy, and I'm thinking about the the, the um, Sydney Morning Herald articles in the in the 1980s about Suharto, and you mm -hmm. also mentioned, uh, without a lot of elaboration, uh, about uh, media focus during the Vietnamese boat people arrival um, yeah. phrase that was used at the time. Uh, in the 1970s. What, what sort of impact does the media have as another sort of source of information, perhaps distraction, uh, in, in foreign policy? Uh, it's changing a lot. I mean, when... And I guess I should ask, you know, if you see that across the, the various different yeah. players that you've covered. Well, not, not when this... I won't go back... I can't go back to when the story began, but certainly at the, at the point in which I first... Um, you know, went to Canberra and started uh, working. There were, there were certainly um, journalists who were as sort of in the foreign policy space, uh, um, like uh, like Peter Hastings, um, uh, for example, or, or Dennis Warner, who were sort of able to shape. Um, uh, uh, opinion uh, with the uh, uh, with the, the policy uh, policy makers. So there was a, a, a sort of an ongoing conversation with the Australian um, public during that period. There's the the sort of sheer um, sort of well, the sh shallowing out of the number of journalists now, and the sort of diversification of uh, of media sources. Makes it much harder now to um, to uh, see a sort of a, a, a continuous narrative um, going uh, going through it all. Uh, the the media sort of loses interest very quickly uh, in things. That so has the potential to uh, um, cause uh, panic in Canberra because there's a front page um, headline on something on the day before question time and answers have to be uh, ha have to be uh, found um, but um, it's 
less common for there to be a sort of a theme that goes on over a long period of time that uh, affects it. So the, the media is more reflective of the, the, the public interest than shaping the public interest in foreign policy. I think. You, you say quite a few times in the book, and I was going to leave this to later, but this is a good time to raise it. You say quite a few times in the book a sort of an assertion that, that there's not a lot of public interest in foreign policy in Australia. Why, why do you think that? Oh, because it's sort of because people don't have to be interested in it and there's no reason why they should. I, I'm certainly not one of those people who um, thinks that it's uh, sort of morally reprehensible that people aren't interested in the same things that uh, I'm, uh, I'm interested in. But foreign policy is also, as I say in the book, it's, it's sort of um, uh, it happens remotely from where people uh, live. Um, it's a it's a backroom business. It's a business of uh, compromises. Uh, um, uh, you go into any bookshop in a, in Australia, and there are shelves full of military uh, history, and you can understand that because these are sort of human tales of heroism. Uh, the negotiating the negotiation over whatever it was, you know, fifteen years of the Law of the Sea Convention. Um, doesn't lend itself to the uh, to the same uh, um, lively uh, stories, uh, although the impact on on Australia was uh, w was uh, uh, greater than a number of individual battles. Yeah, I mean, certainly it was the case a couple of years ago when Australia was running for the uh, for the United Nations. Security Council. I had a few people. Might have been one, you. Might have been one of them. Um, say to me, why, "Why are we paying so much attention to this? This? And it's, well, because it's a race, and there's going to be a winner and a loser, and yeah, yeah. it's an easier story to tell than yeah, than yeah. long iterative yeah. changes over time." Yeah. But one of the things that that um, just before I go to to the audience for questions, um, <coughs> yeah, you, you, your frame is fear of abandonment, but there's also a sense of belonging. That Australia is looking for in in the book, which is the the, the other side of that, um, uh, the alliance with the United States, the historical attachments to to the UK, to Britain, uh, a part of it, but also to institutions. And I wanted to get to the Commonwealth, and I know you have a strong view on <laughs> on the value of the Commonwealth. So if we could get into that, but I wondered, is is it unfair of me just to stir to to compare? Uh, what was then the Southeast Asia Treaty Organisation to the present East Asian Summit, whether the Commonwealth of those days is now the G20 of the, the modern era, that we, 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 look for, we look to be joining these clubs, but we outgrow the clubs or the, the usefulness of the club doesn't last. Yeah, I don't, I don't mind, um, <clears throat> you know, every, everything has its uh, its time and its uh, season and uh, institutions international institutions that are valuable at one point uh, won't be at, a, at another and sometimes it's better to put them out of it, their mercy to have them than to have them uh, uh, continue looking for um, uh, looking for sort of uh, other things to uh, uh, to do that was I think one of the issues with NATO uh, after the end of the uh, after the end of the uh, Cold War, um, so East Asia summit may either um, 
uh, emerge as an absolutely um, critical um, uh, instrument for bringing together the great powers of the uh, region, or it may, uh, or it may uh, uh, fade away. I don't think that matters very much. Some things will be important at a particular time and not another. I mean, uh, um, uh, APEC had a particular role in the uh, early 1990s, which it no longer uh, necessarily um, uh, has. Uh, the thing, the thing, I mean, you, Dan is is being very, very polite because he's heard me on the uh, Commonwealth before, and one of the reasons he's heard me on the Commonwealth before is that during a particular period of my professional life, I had the misfortune to be the common, the Australian representative on a number of um, Commonwealth senior officials um, uh, meetings, and uh, it was uh, truly wrist-litting. Uh, um, <laughs> Uh, uh, stuff, but the uh, and uh, and I've been around quite long enough now to um, to experience the cycle where every uh, uh, five or ten years someone will Bob Carr was the last one I think to uh, discover the Commonwealth and say that no 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 this can, this can be remade as a really vital um, contemporary um, inst institution um, it can't uh, so. <laughs> Um, but but there are there are you know uh, historical uh, reasons uh, that we all know why it uh, uh, why it persists, and it also offers us opportunities to win lots of uh, sporting medals in the uh, in the Commonwealth Games. So I know, what, I, what, what would he do without the Commonwealth Games? I, I got a terrific story out of Alan, um, although he probably didn't like this. Uh, <laughs> because when he was with the with the Lowy Institute in order to uh, uh, to contribute to public debates, he wrote a savage article about the Commonwealth, saying very similar things to what he's just said now. But then, helpfully, he went back into government and went and worked for the Office of National <laughs> Assessment. So I dug out that old article when we were hosting the Commonwealth in 2011, and just said, you know, "Here's here's one of the government's key." Um, Key advices and look what they think because they wouldn't say these things, Alan. Not, not when they're out of government. I'm stealing this from someone else. I really like this uh, division uh, of, of Australian foreign policy into a kind of prosperity agenda where we talk about trade. And I can really imagine Donald Trump going and going to APEC to talk about free trade in the Asia Pacific. But, but we we have a trade agenda, a prosperity agenda, and then we have an ambulance chasing agenda, which is all of the crisis that we have um, that we have to confront and respond to and uh, you've covered so much in in the book and I heartily recommend it to, to everyone that's here and and to all the students and all the DFAT applicants and everyone else that that, <laughs> that, that, that that will buy it for you so that you can live rich off the royalties that I'm sure that you'll get from from um, Latrobe and uh, and black but no seriously congratulations Ellen and um, and uh, thanks for taking the time to, to speak to us today and well done. That's Alan Gingell in conversation with me, Daniel Flitton, on the 5th of April 2017. And you've been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe Asia. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud, where reviews are appreciated. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Daniel Flitton. And you can follow La Trobe Asia at La Trobe Asia. I'm Dan Flitton, and thanks for listening. <laughs>